Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Good evening and welcome to another edition of Radio Islam. This is your host, Tariq Alameen, and we are broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM, and we are streaming at WCEV1450.com. Now, for those of you who are new to the Radio Slime family, we thank you for tuning in. We're on every night from 6 to 7 p.m. Central, coming to you from the wonderful city of Chicago, Illinois. You might even hear that train rumbling in the background. We are just just feet away from the elevated, the legendary elevated train of the loop. Um, you can keep up with us by following and liking our pages on social media. You'll find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Radio Islam USA. That's at Radio Islam USA. And you can check out those previous episodes that you've missed uh, wherever you get your podcasts. So if there's iTunes, TuneIn, Google Play, or SoundCloud, you'll find us at Radio Islam USA. And last but not least, um, we definitely will have our, uh, our Twitter pages open right now as well as our Facebook page. So if you have comments throughout the course of tonight's uh, discussion, we'll try to incorporate them into uh, the program. But if you'd like to make a phone call, right, you're just itching to get on the phone and call us, you can do so by calling 312-750-1178, 312-750-1178. All right, Radio Sound family, let's get into it. As you know, this is probably the fastest hour in radio uh, tonight. We are really pleased. We are, um, we are honored to have joining with us by phone, uh, Namira Islam, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> Still getting over a little something, I see. Uh, uh, she is the co-founder and executive director of the Muslim Anti-Racism Collaborative, um, commonly known, popularly known as Muslim ARC. Uh, this is an organization that provides racial justice education and training, and um, uh, they're doing some phenomenal, phenomenal work. So we're excited to talk with her, and specifically, before I bring her on, if you're on Twitter, you need to, you need to, if you check our page, you'll see uh, that we just retweeted today an article um, that Namira did about, uh, and, the, and the title is, I'm sure if the title is uh, Soft Islamophobia, uh, and it's, uh, it's a dynamic and insightful read, and we're going to be talking about that and much more tonight. So we want to go ahead and bring Namira on. Assalamu alaikum. Thank you so much for having me. It is a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Um, so yeah, so let's. Wh- where should we start? Well, we, we we can't we can't sit still, right? Because like I said, this is a real quick. It'll be seven before we know it. Um, mm-hmm. No, exactly. One thing I was really thinking about today, based on some other discussions that you know I was having with people who are relatively new to this, and we were talking about kind of the reality that. Islamophobia, there's all these different understandings of what it is. <laughs> and yeah, yeah. so on the one hand, I always find it as a lawyer, like I always find it very useful to examine what the other side is always saying, right? And so what the arguments from like the governmental perspective on what um, anti-Muslim set, you know, systems have been set up, it's very interesting to see what they think of when, when you think of like anti-Muslim discrimination, bigotry. Then there's kind of the, the way that liberals and people who are, you know, good-hearted, good-intentioned people, but they don't really have the systemic analysis of Islamophobia, they have a specific way of looking at it and specific um, tactics that they're trying to use to push back against this kind of hate. And then you have people who are more, you know, critical race theorists, um, people who have a much more nuanced understanding of racism overall that are looking at Islamophobia. And those discussions, I think, are really 
powerful and really fascinated by it. And I think people like, you know, Kalabay June, uh, Leila Abdullah-Pulos, Marguerite Hill, like I'm surrounded by these amazing thinkers who are really looking at Islamophobia from the structural lens. And so this piece was a way of kind of trying to combine all of that, things that I've been observing over the last like four years in particular, but really as, you know, since I was a child, I mean, 9-11 happened when I was in 10th grade. And so it's been kind of this crash course and, hey, what, what are people thinking when they think Islamophobia? Right, right. Now, one of the things, uh, the first thing that jumped out, and, and you led with this in the piece, um, identifying some of the issues uh, regarding Islamophobia, and I'm glad that there's a transition. We'll, we'll get to this, the transition in, in language. People understand it as Islamophobia, but anti-Muslim racism. Right. And mm-hmm. we'll, we'll throw that in. But I want to just bring up uh, the, the first thing that, that you talk about being relative to uh, to addressing Islamophobia and said one is the lack. And matter of fact, you just mentioned this. One is the lack of structural analysis around anti-Muslim hate. Uh, and then second, you mentioned uh, the transformation of Muslim into a cultural category. Uh, right. And and and. And having an opportunity to talk with, uh, I spoke with um, Khalid uh, Beydoun, I think it was a couple of months ago, but many other uh, other folks who, who speak about this idea of this phenotypical uh, representation of a religion, um, you know, looking for uh, um, physical markers to say, oh, you must be Muslim, mm-hmm. right? And, and, and how that, how that it, it underpins uh, and perpetuates um, Islamophobia. Uh, it, 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 it underpins the violence and, and the bias that goes along with it. And it's right. not, and you can't really properly address it if you don't understand that, um, uh, that it is a multi, it's a multifaceted thing. I didn't mention the third thing and I want to get, you know, hear, hear your, uh, uh, take on a little bit more, more of this. The third you said was, um, uh, the discomfort with an erasure of Islam as a faith that includes right. guidance. Now, I thought uh, on issues of exploitation and oppression, I thought this was a just such a tremendously important point because Islam is quite often talked about um, as if as if uh, it's uh, an adherence, uh, as if Muslims are people who who don't consider um, who don't consider uh, oppression, who don't consider uh, injustice as things that we are supposed to be. Uh, against so um, so let me let me ask you this: Who feels the 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 mus the Muslim the Muslim box right when we talk about representation? <laughs> it's a great question, <laughs> right? And I think that in and of itself really highlights a lot of these dynamics. So especially, I mean, so I bring up you know this point in the article, but I've been talking about it. With quite a few different people, depending on where they sit in this kind of like nonprofit kind of sector, or if they're in kind of a more governmental sector, or if they're just not tied to any mosque or community center, right? right. And so there are certain terms that are used quite a bit uh, to describe the communities that are targeted by Islamophobia. And these terms kind of structure the way that you know you bring stakeholders into the room and the way that you fund organizations. And so one of them in particular that I know has, has really just, whenever I hear it, I really just wince, is MASA, and it yes. stands for Muslim Arab South Asian. Mm-hmm. And I remember the first time that it came up, and I think I was talking to Marguerite Hill, and she was like, MASA? Like, 
plantation massa. <laughs> you know, like, what, where is this term coming from? She's written about this as well. But right. that has been one way that people have described the communities that are targeted by Islamophobia. So anti-Muslim hate targets Muslims, Arabs, and South Asians. And when I first asked about, hey, okay, so where do, like, black Muslims fit? Where do um, Latino Muslims fit? And I was told that Muslim is supposed to also cover people of other ethnicities that fit within this box. Now, of course, when we've looked at how Islamophobia has, you know, whether it's vigilantes on the street, whether it's the Muslim ban, just some of these different, you know, whether it's government or individual, the way that they target people is this concept of perceived to be Muslim. Right. And that, to me, has really just boiled down to something about foreignness and something about non-white skin. And you see it even after the Boston uh, Marathon bombings, for example, the darkening of the skin, uh, skin tone for the two brothers who mm-hmm. were from the, you know, who were ethnically Caucasian, but even the skin tone was darkened, so it looked more, they looked more brown. Um, and so this has been kind of, you know, the way that I like to talk about it is Muslim are perceived to be Muslim because that tends to cover just anybody who is, you know, deemed to fit within this box, whether it's by the government or by individual like vigilante types who are attacking people on the street. Right, right. And, and what we're talking about is um, we're talking about when we say racism, we're talking about structural um, racism. Right. And and I think that's that's a, that's a key point to the to the discussion that goes beyond simply just just uh, having dialogue. Um, because that perceived to be Muslim is very much similar to the perceived to be black. Um, right. Where, you know, they, they're not concerned if you're, you know, if you're Somali or, if you're, or Bengali or you're from, you know, Africa, Caribbean or whatever. If, you, if you're perceived to be black within the context of the United States of America and its history, then you are treated as such. And because of that, um, because, of, because of that, uh, uh, that connection, um, there has to be kind of a, there has to be a step back to say, well, we, we have to look at what are the structural underpinnings of of racism in whatever form. So exactly. I was really mm-hmm. I'm really uh, I, I think I, I will be using that term anti-Muslim racism uh, because I think that is a much that is a much more uh, effective uh, descriptor of, of what we're of what we're looking at, what we're fighting against. I thought that syllabus was really um, powerful, you know, to look at the way that uh, Evelyn Al-Sotini and Dr. Suat Abdul-Kabir, mm-hmm. uh, that they put together the sil- uh, syllabus, you know, on anti-Muslim racism. I think one hesitation that I had with it um, after reviewing it, and which was part of the reason I even decided to write Soft Islamophobia, mm-hmm. was this tendency right now among, you know, liberal spaces because of the Trump administration, because of this idea of, you know, the resistance, <laughs> I'm in all caps, <laughs> that anti-Muslim racism, what I'm afraid of and what I feel is often going to happen because of the way these spaces are designed, is that it just gets kind of... Um, the term, people don't have that direct understanding of what the term means because mm. a lot of them are not educated about racism and what racism means. Right. And so that's like my only caution, I think, with the term. I do completely agree in terms of it capturing a lot of the nuances better. Um, but I do see just from based on being in some of these liberal spaces where they are trying to fight Islamophobia, I feel like the, the tactics that are used just reveal a lot about their lack of understanding on structural issues because, and I think it goes back to what they would even say as 
you know, potential tactics to fight anti-blackness, where it's focused a lot more on individual relationships, on, you know, narratives, um, on just eradicating stereotypes or people being more familiar with Muslims. And it often lacks this analysis of, like, the structural forces that are set up to target and, you know, specifically keep certain people in certain positions. Um, so that's my only only kind of nuance with that. But I totally agree in the sense that um, anti-Muslim racism, I thought that the term was very interesting. And I thought that it was a really great syllabus to look at. Yeah. Well, this idea of proximity, um, that, you know, if mm-hmm. we are close enough to one another, then everything will, will work itself out. You know, we'll see the humanness of the other. And, um, I mean, theoretically? Right, exactly. Theoretically, <laughs> sure. Right. If only, right? Right. <laughs> But but we know we we endured uh, centuries of uh, of chattel slavery here in the United States, and there could there was probably not a time in our history um, here where uh, black and white were as close, um, and and even with that proximity, where uh, enslaved African uh, women were nursing the children of their enslavers. Uh, that still did not stop them from being uh, sexually violated from their from their families from being separated from all types of you know unimaginable abuses uh, to take place. So the the history of proximity is not one that uh, necessarily overthrows uh, structural um, uh, injustice or oppression or inequality. Exactly, and that's the history that I think for so many people I keep. I bring this up where there's a lack of, you know, black voices in these spaces who can, I mean, it's not as if this hasn't been tried, this idea of proximity, right? And this is such a, like, powerful example of why just relying on, hey, if everybody meets a Muslim, Mm. or if everybody is a neighbor with a Muslim, or if there's just more kind of neighborly kind of behavior, then this will automatically take down the system. I really wish that people were listening to this um, kind of analysis and this perspective a little bit more because it already, you know, people are investing so much into kind of, hey, proximity kind of narratives and discussions and work that I just find it, you know, kind of difficult to sit there and listen to it. And I'm like, but this is already, we already have an example of why this is not going to work in the way that we're anticipating it's going to work. Right. Now, you do trainings uh, throughout the United States. Um, you have commentary. Um, and uh, with, with, within the work that, that you've been doing, have you found that Muslims are more apt to uh, buy into this idea of, um, of proximity? And, of course, when I say, I should say Muslim communities, right? Because, mm-hmm. you know, not speaking uh, of us as a monolith, but, uh, but do you find that there are those in in the, the Muslim communities uh, that are thinking, they, they, they are embracing that, that idea? I think so. I think it's because a lot of, um, I think it's for a couple of reasons. So the first reason I would say is because white liberals tend to have this viewpoint, right? That, <laughs> hey, I didn't know any Muslims, I met a Muslim, and then that's why I'm like such a strong ally for this work. And so that's been kind of listed as this really great need that they feel, okay, you know, we don't, we didn't know enough Muslims, but we know you all, and we work with you all, and if only more people were, be able, were to be able to do that, then, like, this would be able to fix it. 
So there's some of it coming from that angle of this being the advice of nonprofit leaders or of people who are working in these spaces that, hey, there just needs to be, you know, more people knowing each other. I think on the other hand, there's also kind of the narrative that came up after um, 9-11, especially with like the DAWA kind of mindset mm-hmm. that, you know, we need to be less into our bubbles. We need to make sure to be more. And this was coming a lot from like immigrant Muslims, right? So it was coming from a lot of people who were like, first or second generation, and they were saying, oh, you know, we've been just kind of off in our own bubbles, and so now we need to make sure to be more friendly with our neighbors and to go out there more, and and that way if people know us, then they'll see that we're not like those terrorists. And so that framework has been there for a while, and I think that's why people are embracing it, because, hey, we're not, you know, as fully into society and and these assimilation narratives about we're not as, you know, part and parcel of society as we should be, and if we were, then they'll fix it. Um, as if there is no example of what that looks like or what that, you know, has how that has happened in the past. And so this this is kind of like experimental, you know, push for it. But I do think from, you know, based on some of the discussions I've had, I mean, I do think there's so much value in education and the fact that people are in silos that does lead to certain issues. It's not as if there's no value in it, but putting all of our eggs in that basket of as long as people knew us, they would love us, and they would stop this kind of hate, then everything would change. Just putting all of our eggs in that basket, I think that's where some of the the issues are. But so many people have been very strongly you know, working in that field and kind of disregarding some of the advice or analysis from other perspectives. Mm. I mean, when it comes to the, the, the to the population of these or populating these panels. Uh, populating these uh, these think tanks uh, where discussions are taking place about uh, Islamophobia uh, and the positioning of white liberals and mm-hmm. i 'm not saying and, and i'm I am not saying uh, this in a in a negative way right because often we have biases that we don 't understand or we 're not aware of right. until we reflect on them um, or they 're pointed out to us. <laughs> But uh, do you think that the depiction or the population of these 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 spaces um, they, that are often controlled by uh, these people by, by white liberals that it's not representative of the actual Muslim uh, community or the Muslim population of the United States? Um, do you think that there is an element of maybe unintended bias that is a part of that uh, because we've you know, at one point, uh, the African American community was very much the representation of Muslims in America, um, or at least a, it was a part of a, a great part of that. And to see the media shift where uh, it's not that you know the the African American uh, Black American community is not highlighted uh, as much in the mainstream media, uh, and it's more of a it, you know the 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 representation it, it looks more it looks more foreign right even if you even if you're talking about somebody who's been here for for four generations mm-hmm. right but the perception is oh you're an immigrant you're foreign um do you think that is due to the unintended bias of those white liberals who often are making decisions or they're you know they they're funding or maybe even on the the front lines of of doing the work um that we're supposed to be doing? Yeah, there's, I think there's a couple of things. One is the lack of diversity. So I think it is, you know, who's in the room and who is able to actually 
get invited into these spaces when decision-making is happening. There's that. And then the other issue is lack of inclusion. So even if people are trying to be more inclusive and trying to be more diverse and have certain voices at the table, oftentimes when you get there, there's still kind of a chilling effect on the speech where certain speech is not seen as welcome in certain spaces. Mm. And that certainly comes, you know, like I said, so many of these people are very well-intentioned. They're trying to really, you know, do the right thing um, and dedicate a lot of time and effort and energy into it when they could be doing other work. But that that just lack of inclusion, I think, too, it's like even if there was one voice there, um, if there was really inclusion where that voice could really be heard and be counted as part of the you know, decision-making process, then that one voice can make a huge difference. Um, I think in general, in, in the nonprofit industrial complex, like that term has, has come up more and more, mm-hmm. um, because it's it's a matter too, like in terms of who's in these spaces, it's who can afford to be in these spaces sometimes. Yeah. Um, you know, many people I know for myself personally, when I went to law school, like I was very intentional about picking a law school that was less highly ranked, but that was giving me more of a scholarship opportunity because I knew I wanted to go into public interest later. And I didn't want a huge law school you know, student debt to discourage me from going to certain fields. And the reality is that given the lack of pay or the lack of benefits in a lot of these nonprofit spaces, it's people who have more privilege in certain ways that are able to actually go into these spaces and stay in these spaces. Other people are really trying to you know, make sure that they're in much more stable environments that pay better. Um, and they can't afford to be in these spaces. So yeah. the entire kind of structural situation in the United States with like who has access to the resources that let them kind of be involved in charity and good works, even that like impacts this Islamophobia space as well. Um, and you see kind of with uh, the think tanks and that kind of concept, there is a lack of resources. Um, and with that lack of resources comes the lack of, you know, funding to even be in the room sometimes. Um, so for example, for certain people, like if we're having some of these strategic planning meetings or whatever, it's not often a common practice to provide a stipend for those who are taking time off other paid work to come to these meetings. Mm-hmm. So automatically that's going to leave out certain segments of the Muslim population in the United States because it's not as if class issues don't intersect with race. And uh, in the United States, I mean, right now we've got, I think it's 45% of American Muslims are technically under the poverty line in the United States. Wow. And that includes immigrants of all different backgrounds, includes those who have or were born here and have been raised here for generations. But those voices, I mean, if they were even invited to the space to begin with, would they be able to attend without more support to make sure that they can live their lives? Um, so I think there's a number of kind of systemic issues that are leading to the demographics that are in the room. But then also once we're in the room, um, these discussions sometimes are very difficult. And that's something that Muslim Arc, we really are trying to ensure that any spaces when we do these trainings mm-hmm. that we're taking away some of these, you know, hardships and the stigma that is tied to these discussions where everybody's so afraid, right, to bring mm-hmm. up race or to talk about class or to talk about privilege because they're really, you know, how we handle it in the United States is very different from other places um, in certain ways. And there's just not this comfort with this idea of even human rights education and training. It's a very foreign concept um, <laughs> locally. And so people just are really sensitive to these topics, and it turns into potentially, you know, derailing conversations of how people see it when you bring up issues of race or class sometimes in these spaces. Yeah, and I've seen that uh, quite often, uh, initially, people will feel that they are being held responsible 
Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, I like to say it's not that, you know, you're being held responsible, you're being held accountable. You're not responsible right. for the history, but you are certainly accountable for how you how you use, use your, your privilege and your positioning um, to make sure that uh, what has been done, uh, it, it stays in the past, that, we, you know, that we break this, this cycle of, of oppression, that we break the cycles of, uh, of, of stratification that, you know, that, that allow for not only for state-sanctioned uh, oppression or state-sanctioned violence, but for violence that occurs through uh, proxies, you know, of the, of the state. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and in saying that, I want to ask about the, uh, or just bring up some of the, the, that violence that you mentioned. Um, there are a few. There are a few examples you gave about folks who had been, uh, who had been attacked, uh, who had been confronted, you know, uh, aggressively, um, and who actually were not Muslim, right? Exactly. So, right. Uh, uh, so you know what? I'm looking at. I'm looking at the clock. I'm gonna. We, we got to take a short break. <laughs> okay. <laughs> when we come back, uh, we want to hear how Muslim Arc, how you incorporate those other um, elements, those those other those who appear to be Muslim, um, how they respond to the work as well. So, um, Radio Islam okay. family, we're talking to an Amir Islam. She is a Bangladeshi American uh, lawyer, graphic designer based in Michigan, and co-founder and is executive director of the Muslim Anti-Racism Collaborative. This is WCEV 1450 AM. We'll be right back in a minute. People have all kinds of excuses for not saving energy. I didn't plug it in. I'll turn it off later. It's not my music. It's just one phone charger. So, um... We don't have those Energy Star appliances. So that old window leaks. How much energy and money could the new ones really save? Maybe it's time to stop making excuses and start doing some simple things to save the energy and resources we can. Because a little here and a little there can add up to a lot later. And you just never know what people will need in the future. My name is Sarah, and I'm going to get started today. We can all help save more energy for tomorrow. What's your excuse? For more energy-saving tips that also save money, visit loseyourexcuse.gov parents. This message is brought to you by the U.S. Department of Energy, the Ad Council, and the station. Hey, America, we need to have a little talk. I don't know if you've noticed, but we got a lot of food in this country. A lot of peaches, a lot of corn, a lot of apples, a lot of everything. We've got so much food that we can't even eat it all. So if we got all this extra food, how are 17 million kids in America struggling with hunger? I just don't get it. That's why the Feeding America nationwide network of food banks gathers surplus food and gets it to the hungry kids who need it. They can get you food even if you live in Idaho or Alaska or somewhere crazy like that. This isn't complicated. we got extra food and we've got hungry kids. Feeding America's done the math. Now it's your turn. Support Feeding America in your local food bank at feedingamerica.org. I know you got internet on your phone, so what are you waiting for? We can't do it without your help. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. The Syrian Community Network, with offices nationwide, serves its Chicago area clients from its Northside location 
located at 5439 North Broadway. They provide housing, social services, education, basic human needs, and food security. The Syrian Community Network has Arabic-speaking staff and is a partner organization of the Illinois Coalition for Immigrant and Refugee Rights. You can get more info by calling area code 872-806-0141. That's area code 872-806-0141 or by visiting their website at syriancommunitynetwork.org. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back. Welcome back to Radio Islam. This is your host, Tariq El and we are broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM, streaming live at WCEV1450.com. You can follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and also get the podcast. Subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcast at Radio Islam USA. So it's the same username for both things, right? Social media and podcast at Radio Islam USA. All right, we are having a um, uh, great discussion with Namira Islam. She is the co-founder and executive director of the Muslim Anti-Racism Collaborative, Muslim Arc. And we've been talking about a recent um, uh, article that she wrote, uh, Soft Islamophobia, and talking about the, the um, just kind of the, the underpinnings and the contributors to uh, Islamophobia and, and all that good stuff. And uh, before, we, before, we took, uh, before we went to break, this is terrible. What was my question? I was halfway through the question. <laughs> this this is awful. I should have I should have written I should have written my question down. You're asking about you're talking about like the other people who are perceived to be Muslims, so the Latinos, oh. the Africans, yes, um, yes, yes, Jamaicans, you know, people who are non-Muslim <laughs> but were perceived to be Muslim and therefore attacked like on the street. Yes, um, thank you so much. Go yeah. right here. We were talking about that, and I think it's. It's it's been very interesting just watching the coalitions forming around addressing Islamophobia because ultimately you know these stories there are multiple stories now where it's people who are Latino and they're just mistaken for Arab and some Arabs get mistaken for Latinos as well mm-hmm. you know and then you have uh, I think the story that I mentioned in one of the articles that I linked to in the piece was about an African Christian man who was on an EasyJet flight in the UK and somebody saw ISI men as like a WhatsApp title. And the the um, acronym had stood for Iron Sharpens Iron. It was a Bible study group. Right. He was an African uh, Christian man who somebody read it over his shoulder, and then he got kicked off the flight. Um, and he was not Muslim, but was assumed to be, you know, Muslim enough or perceived <laughs> to be Muslim enough to the point where law enforcement had to get called in to remove him and then, you know, talk to him after he got off the flight. Mm. Mm. Well, you know what? This is a great time for me to uh, to throw in a question uh, from uh, from Twitter. Uh, Layla Abdullah. Oh, perfect. <laughs> great. <laughs> uh, and her question for you is: How unintentional is white liberal bias, and how much involves attempts to force a narrative that maligns Muslim culture and Islam as backwards and subversive? I love that question. Um, and I think so much of it, there is this unintentional kind of systemic things that people are just ignorant of or whatever, but there is very much a, an intentional 
um, effort to paint Islamists backwards. And I think some of the white liberals who are in these spaces are not just there because, or not kind of structuring things in a way only because it's unintentional, but because they hold very specific views about um, Islam and Muslims, and they're coming at it from this white savior perspective, mm. which, you know, is so, there's such a long-standing history of, you know, whether it's missionary work, whether it's, hey, we need to liberate the Muslim women, um, whether it's these stereotypes about Muslim men, about, you know, cultural norms that are, you know, about not eating pork, not drinking, certain things that are seen as dangerous and that are seen as inherently threatening. And, you know, we know that white liberals are not immune to kind of holding these beliefs and then acting on it in certain ways. And I think that has especially been in the liberal kind of Islamophobia, the anti-Islamophobia space, there is this deep discomfort with religion. And certain Muslims are the ones who are centered and praised in certain ways because they're the ones who, you know, um, I mentioned this article, have full faces of makeup, right? Yeah, that makes yeah. them very comfortable or who have, you know, their hijab styles a certain way. Um, they speak unaccented English or they are comfortable. And especially with this kind of cultural Muslim thing, you have a lot of people reacting to cultural Muslims who, you know, eat pork, don't pray, don't fast. Um, and see all those things as backwards and kind of, you know, things that their parents did, but they don't. Those are people who are often celebrated by media outlets who are looking to humanize Muslims, but essentially are really looking to humanize people who don't feel threatening to them. And they see these religious yeah. practices as signs of extremism or as signs of, you know, incompatibility with Western values. And that narrative is such a longstanding one with Orientalism, but then also with just anti-blackness as a whole. Right. Now, you mentioned that there's an there's an uncomfortable uh, uncomfortability that exists, Mm -hmm. not just with the um, not just with the uh, with with different faith traditions coming together um, in in whatever in whatever uh, platform, whether it's, you know, in person, online, whatever, but extend that even further. There's uh, there is an uh, there's an uneasiness that also comes with when we start opening up scripture and start talking about what what my faith tradition says um and uh and, and it's funny because this is also in light of uh this this is also happening while much of the world not just the united states but much of the the, the world the western world i would say is experiencing a decline in organized uh religious affiliations right uh, and 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 so I, I thought about this as, as you're saying this, this uncomfortable uh, uh, stance that folks have. You started out the article uh, mentioning that, you know, you were a panelist uh, speaking at a convening and you opened up or, or you made a reference uh, to Quran. To you made a reference to scripture. Mm-hmm. And did you feel that the response that you got from your uh, co-panelists uh, when they got up to speak, you said they also took the, took a moment to also reference uh their scripture uh but was it was it out of a lack of comfortability or was it was it almost uh i don't know was it um did it feel slightly combative um, so I'm often going to these spaces kind of low-key trolling, right? <laughs> so these spaces, a little bit. But, I mean, that was genuinely just something where the, the situation, I can't remember exactly what verse that I had, had cited, but 
um, it really called for it. Like, it made sense. We were talking about the strategy and kind of local efforts that were happening and things like that. And I was like, well, it, it was coming grounded from this specific verse. Right. Um, so afterward, what ended up happening was that there were pastors and reverends and priests and certain other people, I think some rabbis, who were in the room, and they were very interested in talking about this because when we're looking at kind of these um, spaces that are fighting bigotry of different kinds, you do see a lot of faith. Um, individuals in these spaces, and and the term religious left has been um, kind of debated a little bit, but especially with like Reverend William Barber's like Poor People's Campaign going on now, mm-hmm. you have a lot of people who are you know people of faith, people uh, who very much are passionate about religion and see religion as a very strong positive guiding force in their lives, who are interested in fighting certain kinds of hate. And so those are the people that I think I've gravitated most toward, um, and especially when I bring up Scripture, that they have also kind of, you know, it's this opening to sit down and just really be like, oh, you know, this reminds me of a passage, or we have something similar, or, you know, can you talk a little bit more about this? Uh, because it's a space to really talk and get into the weeds with some of the religious kind of backings and certain things we're thinking about. Other people, however, they don't like it. They certainly don't like it. Um, it becomes... You know, right now, especially as you mentioned, with like the lack of um, declining support for organized religion, it's like not only is there kind of this uh, lessening of support for religion in general, but I think in certain in certain segments of society, Islam is seen as the worst religion. Um, It's like all the other, you know, all religion is bad, but Islam is the worst. Hmm. Um, And that's something that I think, you know, when we're in these spaces, people are willing to engage with Muslims, and they don't think it's fair that Muslims are being, you know, malaligned, especially when those Muslims are, you know, seen as um, the doctors and the lawyers and the people who are, you know, contributing to American society and are valuable members of this population, especially when that language is used. It's like, oh, these Muslims don't deserve that. But, you know, Islam is a problem. Um, and, and this idea that, you know, Islam and terrorism, especially, like, some some of this discipline kind of narrative around, hey, if somebody is practicing, that's when they're more likely to be, you know, susceptible to recruitment by terrorist groups. Like, there's so much discomfort around even going there. Um, and that's why in a lot of these spaces you will find, hey, citing scripture, wow, you sound like those other religious fundamentalists. Those are the people, the war on terror is justified because those are the people that are dangerous. And so, you know, bringing that into this space and kind of having this different narrative about Islam, about you're talking about religion, um, some people, yeah, it, they, it does kind of come off as a combative, combative um, statement in certain spaces. But overall, you know, it, that doesn't mean that we stop talking about it, right? Like, that's always been kind of my, my thing. Like, certain people are in the room are not going to like this, but that's fine. You know, like, it needs to be brought up. Right. That's the person that probably needs it most. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. So, like, if you are uncomfortable with me citing scripture, like, let's talk about that, you know, because... I mean, I can understand it. It certainly is. I'm not going to discount the fact that so much um, religious kind of fundamentalism that we see in the news that we see around us, like it's led to so much pain and to suffering. I'm not going to deny that at all. Mm -hmm. And so when somebody is having this response that religion is dangerous and that they don't want to hear these things, um, I think it is certainly worthwhile to talk about it. Um, But, you know, obviously that conversation needs to come up somehow. You know, there's an obvious power dynamic um, here, just in just in how the narrative is uh, how it's cast, uh, with regard to uh, adherence to religious law, with regard to 
how um, how earnest uh, an individual practices um, uh, and and this correlation uh, that 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 is attempted to be made to say that you know if you're a devout Muslim that means that you are a terrorist in waiting uh, that mm-hmm. there is going to be some violence that is going to be the result of your of you having a beard or wearing hijab or not eating pork right there's that violence uh, against uh, well I, I, I should say I guess the violence against white Americans is <laughs> right, is, right, right. is going to be the end, end result but the the other side of that is and this is where the it becomes a, a power uh, an issue of power um, now if you look at someone like a and I, I won't even point to the easy one the easy one is, is, is a Dylan Roof right mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. but the more uh, the more appropriate one to point to would be someone like Stephen Paddock, um, the the Vegas uh, shooter. You know, killed mm-hmm. fifty eight people, well, fifty nine right. including himself, uh, injured over four hundred uh, people uh, with gunfire, and then it was like a total of I think about eight hundred folks that were um, uh, injured totally, right, just in the stampede and all of that. Now there is not a religious element involved with that violence that took place um and 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 quite often if we're looking at those who are in who are the uh the, the violent disruptors um who the, the majority happen to be white men it's generally not a matter of religion that's at the right. root so it's a power it's a power discussion and i think one for those white liberals in particular who are part of these discussions to to recognize um, and to, exactly. And to I think um, the other thing with it that I really find ironic to some level is that so much of the, the tactics that are being used to kind of you know push back against anti-Muslim hate are about essentially moving Muslims into this category of whiteness. Yes. Because that is so much of the tactics, you know, um, making sure that somebody is uh, as Americanized you know, whatever that means, right? Like right. Americanized as possible, that they are moved into, hey, like you are not the other anymore. Mm-hmm. You are, you know, and and the, and one really like clear example of this is the fact that a lot of the um, the narrative change work cites kind of experiences of um, white queer communities or of Jewish communities mm-hmm. and seeing how that they you know how they lessened um, hatred against their communities by using the mainstream media or by using Hollywood narratives right. and if you look at the examples a lot of them are about having you know white individuals on screen that you know like Ellen DeGeneres or you know modern family or mm-hmm. um, will and grace you know and it's like these stories they're not looking at examples of you know people of color mm-hmm. they're looking at examples of people who kind of gained mainstream acceptance um, and essentially became white. So even looking at, like, Italians who became white or Catholics sure. who, you know, Irish. were once seen as a threat but not anymore. Mm-hmm. And so that's, like, similar tactics that are being used uh, for Muslims. Like, hey, if you do this too, then you can also move into whiteness. When the irony, as you point out, is that whiteness itself, as a sociopolitical category, has utilized violence to maintain itself mm-hmm. and to create this category and to ensure that whiteness is being granted certain access um, to resources and benefits in this system of white supremacy. So in order to bring all of these people into this category of whiteness, that has just the lack of um, understanding around violence and around the history of violence 
I just find it very ironic that this is the strategy that people are trying to use. Yeah. Now, there, there, there is an outlier here. Uh, those who will not, who will, who will not, for whatever reason, um, I shouldn't say for whatever reason, but who will not, for multiple reasons, um, be included into that uh, safe zone. Uh, who will mm-hmm. not be accepted? Uh, you mentioned in in your article you talk about those who speak, uh, who do not speak unaccented English, or those who choose to uh, who to dress um, obviously, you know, um, uh, as a quote unquote as a Muslim, right? Because just because you have on a hijab actually doesn't mean right. I mean, because right. sometimes right. these things, you know, they they, they take on um, their elements of popular culture. Uh, that are also uh, infused in this, but just for the for the for the sake of the the point, um, there are people who are going to be kept outside of that safe zone. Uh, to talk a little bit more about the, uh, especially about those who 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 do not speak unaccented uh, unaccented English. Um, I think that was a really. I think that's also another important uh, point and observation. Right, and right now because. This kind of um, transitioning into, hey, you know, if you kind of join this group that is considered safe, mm. um, we see this with model minorities all the time, right? Um, if yeah. you are, you know, it's always in contrast to certain other troublemaking groups that you are the ones who are safe. Mm. Um, and speaking unaccented English is part of that, you know, you're not threatening because you're not foreign. Right. So there's re- this really strong um, nativist kind of sentiment when it comes to Islamophobia that, you know, the foreign ideology, the East versus West divide, um, that kind of, whether it's Orientalism, whether it's kind of looking at um, South Asia, looking at other places in the world, um, that that's where people are going to not fit in with Western ideas, and that's where these people are possibly a threat, um, which is why, you know, it justifies the wars abroad and all that stuff. And so here, when you see somebody with unaccented English, that's seen as, hey, this person, you know, is likely an immigrant. This person might not have legal documentation. This person might have ties back home. Um, and they, you know, we can't guarantee that they were taught, you know, Western ideals, um, as if Western ideals are so, you know, different, so unique compared to other ideals um, and norms throughout the world, that these are people who might be a threat. Um, and so, you know, there are ways that people overcome that. So you have a lot of, you know, the immigrant doctor, the immigrant, you know, nice person who rescued, you know, like the story from France, where it's the yeah. African uh, migrant who rescued the child that was dangling from the railing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, these people who are doing uh, amazing things. And look, even though they're immigrants, they are adding value to our nation. Uh, that narrative is really strong. And so the signs of whether somebody is an immigrant, I mean, the discussions about, whether somebody should be wearing non-Western clothes, um, whether, you know, they smell bad, whether they... All these different stereotypes around them just being valued less in the society. Mm-hmm. That, you know, if American Muslims are pushing the idea that, hey, we need to make sure that people see us as, as wholly American, but they're using that in contrast to immigrants who are then still left out of that, you know, is that really the Islamically just thing to do? So to we, say that, well, mm-hmm. as long as we got what we need, it doesn't matter what these kind of um, people who don't speak, you know, unaccented English, it doesn't matter if they wear niqab and, you know, if they can't join us in this, if they can't, you know, change their attitudes and their behaviors, then, you know, we don't need to worry about them. 
So we don't really have um, we don't have a big tent philosophy. Um, it is certainly much more about these about the uh, acquiring the benefits of the benefits of whiteness, uh, and, and if not and if not whiteness, then at least uh, at least to be accepted. Um, exactly. Mm-hmm. And um, and it it seems uh, you also you also wrote that, and I've seen this play out as well. Uh, I am a staunch um, opposer of apologist uh, narratives where, you know, we, every time something happens involving a Muslim or if it's a Muslim name where, you know, we have to be the first to, to jump out and, oh, well, it's not all of us uh, or, mm-hmm. you know, we mean peace. But this whole idea that um, that Muslims have taken, they have taken ownership of setting others at ease uh, in the face of, and you talk about this, in the face of uh, American bigotry, you know, and of a bigots, you know, in a, in America, right? We don't want to say all all America. We know that's not the case, right? But uh, for those for those bigots, and the so the response is they lead with, I don't know if you said roses or not, but um, <laughs> but you know they they yeah. lead with you know they lead with their chin out, you know, right, uh, right, and, and they're they're not prepared to take a uh, a defensive posture that 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 is. Um, that is aware of all the differences that we have with within the the Muslim communities, uh, and it's more about uh, just let me let me be okay. Yeah, you and know. I think that there's also this element too of um, internalized like anti-immigrant sentiment, internalized anti-blackness, yeah. because for certain people, it's this assumption that if a white person is saying something, they have to be right, mm, or yep. that we have to defer to what they're saying because clearly they have a stronger opinion. Um, because for so many individuals, I mean, this, the study is even about who justifies civilian deaths, right? You have plenty of white Americans who are constantly, you know, hating on Muslims and talking about how Muslims are barbaric and backwards and all these things that they say, right? But they themselves will sit there and justify civilian death. They will justify the casualties that are, you know, in the war on terror, on drones, in drone strikes, they will justify, uh, you know, harming Palestinian children. They will justify these deaths uh, as long as the right person is, you know, doing it for the right reason. There's There are certain circumstances where it's justified, where people are justifying uh, an army or even with police brutality in this country, right? Like justifying, oh, the police fear for, you know, the officer fear for his life. There are all these situations where people are justifying uh, civilian death, and you have Muslims who, you know, studies have shown, like, Muslims are the number one faith group in terms of saying that it is never justified for a civilian to be killed during some kind of, you know, operation or whatever it is uh, in terms of military excursions, that it is never justified. And yet you have Muslims who are sitting here apologizing or coming from this apologetic space trying to explain to white people who hold this viewpoint, mm-hmm. how, you know, we're human and we're not, you know, the ones to be feared. But I'm like, you're talking to somebody who has less moral um, standing than you do, but you're looking to kind of, you know, please them. You're looking to uh, defer to them and to defer to them and assume that they have a, a stronger moral position than you do. Um and that's something that I think has, you know, comes from a place of internalizing that, you know, white is right and white is yeah. good. And therefore, they're, they're thinking and what they're asking you is a justified question to begin with. Mm. And, and that is a power that I'm not sure if um, 
I'm not sure if, if white people in, in, in general are aware of this pathology um, that, that exists uh, in non-white people. Um, and for those who do recognize it, that, 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 that is a tremendous, that is a tremendous weight. <clears throat> Excuse me. That's a tremendous weight to try to, uh, uh, <laughs> to try to, to try to carry, uh, and, and to undo. And, and for those who do recognize it. <laughs> right. You know. I mean, it's an assumption of authority, wow. right? Like who has the authority to speak on something? And even when it comes to Islam and Muslims, we see so many, you know, white experts on on the issues <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> throughout centuries, right? Like, who yeah. is the expert? You go and you see somebody who is white and has their titles um, by their name, and they are the experts on something. Um, and that's why, like, in my article, kind of, you know, if we know we're here and we're in this position right now, then where do we go from here? And so much of it is, like, centering the experiences of people who are most directly impacted because they do have authority to be able to say, hey, this is not going to work, or right. this is what I would like you to do. Um, and to be able to defer to people for a change rather than assuming that certain people in these spaces have authority, um, that is such a critical shift that needs to happen. Yes. Well, we have uh, the clock has caught up with us. Um, so I want to ask you if you could uh, tell the Radio Sound family where they can keep up with you and Muslim Arc, uh, social media, anything that you would like for, uh, for the listeners to know. Absolutely. So for those who are in the Midwest, uh, Muslim Arc, we're having a Detroit anti-racism training uh, weekend, August 4th. There's a forum in the evening um, at Wayne State University in Detroit. All are welcome to attend. And it's going to be on Detroit Urban Justice, featuring some amazing panelists. But for those who can't attend some of our in-person events in Los Angeles or Detroit, we are a fully outfitted virtual organization. And so we welcome members, uh, members from all over the world. Um, you can become a Muslim Arc member at members.muslimark.org. Uh, we love connecting with people on social media. So Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram is where, you know, three places we update the most. Uh, it's Muslim ARC on all the platforms. And then for me personally, I'm at Namira R.I. on Twitter, um, as well as on Facebook. Um, so we, we love hearing from people. We love getting Thank new members you. into our system. You can join our Thank you uh, so much. channel. Thank you so much, Namira. Yeah, hope to connect. Thank you so much, Namira. I've got to do my auctioneer closing out. Um, Radio Slam family, thank you very much. We thank our engineer over at WCEV Leonard. Thank you very much. We thank our engineer in studio, the impressive one, Ibrahim Baig. I'm your host and producer, Tariq Alameen. Our executive producer is Abdul Malik Mujahid. Uh, the views expressed by the host and our guests are theirs and not to be taken as a representation of Sound Vision Foundation. We'll talk to you tomorrow, family. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you.